0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment podcast.
1: Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia focused, meaning that we're going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law. But occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening.
0: And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right. Now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome
1: back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett.
0: And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're fortunate to have uh, two people to come and talk to us about a topic that judges have asked us to talk about on several occasions. Right, Wade?
1: That's right. Every day all across Georgia, judges are asked to sign orders for mental evaluations, either as to competency to stand trial or for evaluations of a defendant's criminal responsibility. In Augusta, frankly, we just all call them all orders for mental evaluations.
0: Yeah, us too. And uh, and a lot of times what we don't know is – what happens after I sign that order? And so today we thought it'd be a great idea to bring in a couple of the people at the uh, uh, DBHDD, uh, the uh, department, well, we'll let them talk about what DBHDD stands for, and uh, cause I'm ADHD and DBHDD doesn't stick in my head. But um, we'll let them talk about what uh, that stands for and, uh, and what their particular jobs are with that agency.
1: Tane, I struggle with the whole DBHDD. I end up putting too many D's or a B yeah. in the wrong Spot. So let's just do this. I'm going to call it the department for the rest of the episode. I'm going to let everybody else call it whatever they want to call it, but I'm going to keep talking about department. I think that sounds. Um, good. We have enough acronyms in this podcast, quite frankly.
0: That's right. So why don't you introduce our special guest for today, Wade?
1: I'll do that. Um, our special guest today. We actually have two of them. Is Dr. Karen Bailey, who is struggling with her voice a little bit today, so she's going to do everything she can to stay with us as long as she can. She brought her 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 assistant state forensic director at DBHDD, see so yeah, I just did it, at Dr. Kiana Wright and Dr. Bailey and Dr. Wright formed the dynamic duo that is, that is head of the forensic unit or the forensic services unit within the department. Dr. Bailey, we'll start with you. Welcome to the Good Judgment podcast. Is it okay to call it the department?
2: Yes, it is. Thank you for having us.
1: And Dr. Wright, can you hear us okay? You're good with that too?
3: Yes, I am. Thank you.
1: Now, tell us a little bit, and and, and Dr. Wright, I'll turn to you first. How do you find yourself in your career path to the assistant director of the forensic unit at the department? How does that work?
3: Well, it started many years ago. with a few psychology degrees. So I've only worked in psychology and mental health. I got my doctorate in clinical psych. I did a pre-doctoral internship at Northeast Florida State Hospital in forensic psychology and forensic neuropsychology. And then upon graduation, I started my postdoctoral work with the department, which was at Northwest Georgia Regional Hospital. When Northwest closed, which was in rome i went to georgia regional hospital atlanta in decatur and about four years ago we had a change to the structure of the system and the outpatient teams were split off from the inpatient forensic teams dr bailey and in her infinite wisdom created four community teams north south east and west i became the north director in 2016 and just a few months ago, I was promoted to Assistant State Forensic Director when an opening came up.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. Dr. Bailey, tell us about your path and how you got to where you are today.
2: Um, I got my degree in clinical psychology like Dr. Wright um, and did my internship at Butner, the federal prison. Um, And then when I came to Georgia, I actually started at one of our state hospitals, West Central, as a unit psychologist and a forensic evaluator, and stayed there um, four or five years. Went out in the community, missed the work, ended up coming back to West Central in Columbus as the um, state, as a hospital forensic director. And then, due to family circumstances, moved to Atlanta. And it was about the time the department realized that they needed a state director. Wasn't really what I wanted to do, but. Um, Landed it up, becoming the state director of forensic services for the state and sort of building the program over the last 25 years.
1: Well, we are very, very, very grateful for the work that y'all do. Um, today's episode is sort of dedicated to a discussion of the evaluations that are frequently ordered by trial judges. And if we don't, and if we don't run off these two doctors too badly today, my goal and my hope is that in the future we can plan episodes to talk about what happens if a defendant is found not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetent to stay in trial.
0: Yeah, so I'd like to start off by, uh, let's talk about, uh, first of all, how many facilities are there in Georgia now? You talked about the closing of uh, of Northwest Georgia Regional, but how many facilities are there now at which uh, these kinds of evaluations take place? Sure,
2: yeah, there are five state hospitals, but I wanna make clear that the majority and the bulk of our evaluations are done in the community. They're not done at the state hospitals yes so ma'am. over ninety over ninety five percent of our evaluations are done either in a jail or on bond, mostly in the county jails.
1: so Dr. Wright, when somebody's on bond and they and they're being done in the community, how do does an evaluator go to their home? Do they come to your facility? How does that work?
3: Well. They will meet them somewhere in the community. We do not go in homes for evaluations. It could be a public defender's office, judge's office, or a courtroom, not courtroom, sorry, rooms at the courthouse, um, DA's offices we've used, libraries, just anywhere in the community where we can get some quiet space.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And you said there's like 95% of those occur out in the community, is that right?
3: Either on bond or in jail. 95% 95% being outside our of your hospitals. facility,
1: outside of your facility.
3: Yes.
0: And how, how do those, how are those broken down? So if I, I'm in Cobb County, I'm at the Cobb Superior Court. Uh, if, if we, you get an order from me at the Cobb Superior Court, how do you decide where that goes to and who's going to do the evaluation?
3: So our community teams are broken up into four regions, North, South, East, and West. Cobb falls in the North region and so, it the your court order would go to our central court services office, which is located out of Two Peachtree, and then it would be sent out to the appropriate team. And from there, an evaluator would be assigned from that team.
1: I am Augusta. I'm assuming that's East.
3: That is correct.
1: Does my order still go to that central location and get assigned back out to somebody in the East quadrant or
0: whatever? Yes, we
3: ha- we have all of our orders go through our court services department.
0: Through the giant tower at, at two Peachtree.
3: That is correct. <laughs> <I>
2: want, <clears throat> I'd like to make a comment about that. So sure. when we when we changed probably three, four years ago, judges were concerned. We did that for accountability because there were court orders getting lost. So now all orders go to one one place. We thought we log them in when they come in so we know when they come in and as a courtesy to the judges if we get an order that comes in and it was signed by the order by the judge more than 10 days before we get it we send the we send the judge a note and say hey we got your court order and you signed it in june and it's now november and a lot of times that is refining you know sometimes the judge thinks something's being done and we never got the court order so it adds that accountability and we can find problems on our end or problems on the court end and, and to, since we've done this we've had cases where we got order six and nine months after a judge signed it so and then we assign the team so that's one benefit and the other benefit is that um we also have a state office team and some extra evaluators so we can if we need to speed something up we can move or give it to a different evaluator if one team's too booked so that's the other reason but we try to give it to the team that is, you know, is closest to that court.
1: It's really interesting. You say that I've had both of those things happen. Number one, recently when it found out that somebody forgot to send the court order to you. And two, where I had a very time sensitive matter that needed an evaluation done. And I got a world record sort of response from the department because There were, there are lots of reasons that we don't really need to go into here, but there were some time constraints. So I've had both of those things happen. That's really, really interesting. You mentioned the evaluators and you might have extra evaluators in in certain times, depending on caseload. What's the educational background? Y'all are both doctors. Are they all doctors or are they all psychologists? I, I never have gotten all that right. What is the educational background of the evaluators?
3: They're all licensed psychologists.
1: Okay, and so is that sort of a minimum professional degree or professional um, designation before you can be an evaluator?
3: Yes, you have to be uh, a licensed or have a license in psychology to be a psychologist in the state of Georgia.
0: Is there any requirement for any kind of um, forensic training or something along those lines to be an evaluator under these kinds of circumstances?
2: Well, let me add one thing. You can yeah, sure. also be. We also have evaluators that are psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Most of our evaluators are psychologists, but you can be a, a psychiatrist. So I just want to add that in before we offend somebody. The majority, <laughs> especially especially outpatient, it's most. It's almost all psychologists. Mm-hmm. Inpatient, we have some psychiatrists. Um, it's sure. just more cost cost efficient to have psychologists. So, um, but so, but Georgia law, you got to be psychologists or psychiatrists.
1: Do you have special, like Tane was asking, special training in the forensic end to what you're looking for that might be different than someone who was doing couples counseling or children counseling in in the private sector?
3: Yes. So normally our evaluators have either completed um, an internship in forensic psychology or a postdoc in forensic psychology, if not both. And then, of course, some will have that plus on-the-job experience before they come to us.
0: And and how many evaluators do you have in the department? I'm just, I mean, I know these are real basic questions, but it's sort of our opportunity to peek behind the curtain, so it's really interesting for us to figure out where these things go once we ask them. So, I mean, how, how many evaluators are there in the department, Dr. Bailey?
2: Yeah, before, before I answer that, let me add, we also have a forensic certification program for our evaluators. Um, have to go through our own certification, and in addition to what Dr. Wright said that we're looking for before we hire them. But we have a competency certification program where they have to take a written test, their reports get evaluated, and then they have a live interview in front of a mentor to um, get certified in the area of competency. We're working on a certification program for criminal responsibility as well. But our, our competency certification program is pretty rigorous. So I just wanted to – and <clears throat> people are supposed to get it done within their first year of employment. So I, I wanted to add that. Yeah, that's we really have, great. That's right. Really yeah, and I mean, it's, pretty, it's probably one of the most rigorous in the country as far as a certification program. So, uh, so I'm proud of it. So I had to, to throw it in there.
0: You definitely um, should be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we have about, about 40 outpatient evaluators and then we have in in the hospital system we probably have another 40 psychologists or so um, but the ones in the outpatient are both you ju- do both adults and juveniles we have we have people specifically for the juvenile courts as well
1: do are they split up kind of 10 10 10 10 or do you have more of a caseload in one area how, how do you how do are they are there, does east georgia have 10 evaluators ready to evaluate or they they have seven, they have three, they have fifteen, they have whatever the rest of the math is.
2: It, it's it's not exactly even, and we add them as they go. And and if you saw a map of our areas, they're not exactly um, even. We try to keep the judicial circuits when we made east and west. We didn't want to break up circuits, so we try to keep the circuits. So one evaluator would go, you know, to the same judges, and they would get used to them. And the, the boundaries are porous, so like, if, if somebody needs to do something, they can go across the line and do it. It's just more for administrative ease, but, um, and we have sent people from North Georgia to South, but on a routine basis, we try to keep the same evaluators.
1: So we have two kind of valuations that we're calling mental evaluations. One's um, competency to stay in trial. One is, I guess, criminal responsibility. I know because I have heard it from my friends at the department before that if you don't need a criminal responsibility don't ask for it and if you don't need a competency don't ask for it because they are two they are two rather different things and they are and they are it's not rubber stamp one to the other help me understand Dr. Wright if you don't mind sort of the difference between the evaluation of competency to stand trial and the valuation of criminal, for criminal responsibility purposes.
3: Well, for a competency to stand trial evaluation, you are looking at a person's current level of functioning and if they have the ability or capacity to understand the legal proceedings and to help their attorney in their defense. So that's essentially
0: as they're sitting in the room with you on that date, where do they stand at that moment?
3: Correct. and Because it is a snapshot of present day competency can fluctuate. You know, someone obviously is not taking their medication that can have a great impact on their ability to function. So competency is present day, whereas criminal responsibility is a retrospective type of evaluation to look at how the person was around the time of the alleged offense. So that could be six months, a year, three years, however long since the offense happened. And it specifically deals with their mental state at or around the time of the offense. So that will not change as opposed to the fluctuations that can be seen in
0: competency. So, for example, you you may be seeing someone as you're doing the evaluation who has gotten on the appropriate medication since the time of the offense, and so the person you're dealing with is stable and and reasonable and rational and and able to be evaluated very easily. Whereas six months ago, at the time of the offense, there may have been uh, a, a an untreated or undiagnosed mental state that that uh, caused them to be in in a different situation.
3: Is
1: that fair?
3: Correct, that's exactly correct.
1: So let me ask you this, this, logic tells me this to be true, which may mean it's exactly wrong, but (laughs) logic tells me the further you get away from the incident date and you're asked to evaluate whether they are, should be, whether they were criminally responsible, the harder that evaluation gets. Is that true or is that just a fallacy?
3: I would say it all depends because when doing a criminal responsibility evaluation, you're not just relying on the defendant's account of events. You're looking at other sources of information, be it police reports or mean, could be um, body cam videos, recordings, things that happen around that time. So you have various sources of information in which to make a decision or offer an opinion.
1: Dr. Wright, you just made a perfect segue into what it was I wanted to talk about. It's almost like you could read the notes or something. It You talked about the, the sources of information. I was looking at some of the reports that I had received prior to our interview today so I could kind of think of some things I'd like to talk to you about because I have so many questions. And I noticed two things specifically that I really, I thought was, was fascinating to know. Number one was the advisement of rights. So you are required. I know you're not reading Miranda warnings like they do on TV, but it's not far off, is it?
3: No, it's just to advise the defendant of his or her rights as it pertains to the evaluation.
1: So So if somebody says, I'm going to invoke my rights, that's going to make your evaluation a whole lot harder, isn't it?
3: It would, because then we would likely not get any direct information from the defendant and would then have to see if we could do what we call um, a parallel assessment and get information from other sources to try to offer an opinion which doesn't always work, obviously.
1: And then the other thing was the actual sources of information. Where did, What information are you looking to get, and where do you get it from? Yeah. Dr. Bailey, where, where is
0: that coming from?
2: Well, I wanted to add something about the rights because it's really sure. critical. Um, if somebody is, declines to participate in a competency evaluation – That's fine. And we tell them in the notification of rights that we're going to continue to do the evaluation and we are going to submit the evaluations to the court based on observations, based on parallel assessment, like Dr. Wright said. However, if it's a criminal responsibility evaluation, if the defendant declines, we will not do that evaluation because they have to waive their Fifth Amendment rights in order to do that evaluation. So I wanted to make that clear that the two are very different.
0: That makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: All right, Dr. Wright, now you're back on the spot. Tell me about your uh where you're getting your sources of information. What do you need to know or want to know to do these two different kinds of valuations?
3: Well, for a competency, well, both of our actually, both of Al's, we need a court order. We can't do anything without a court order. So that will be always the first source of information. Next, we like to have a police report, an incident report, so we can get a general sense of what occurred, uh, an indictment. If it's not indicted, then we do not do criminal responsibility. But for a competency eval, you know, we don't have to have an indictment. It's nice to have so we can kind of make sure the defendant actually knows what they're charged with. Um, Then from there, it kind of depends on the case. Sometimes we'll get mental health records, if we think that is important to the person's competency. We've got, even in adults, I've gotten school records, if there might be some type of cognitive impairment or long-standing cognitive impairment, I will put school records in. Um, Those are usually the. Basics, I think I can't think of anything else. Dr. Bailey, what did you say?
1: Well, you or mentioned, you mentioned earlier you might look at the body-worn camera video or some sort of surveillance video if you're if you're trying to evaluate the mental status at the time of the crime. But if you're purely doing a competency, you frankly don't care what happened at the scene to a certain degree. You're you're looking more to, as you said, the snapshot of who's sitting in front of you today, right?
3: Correct, how they are functioning in the present. So how they were at the time of the crime is not relevant for competency.
1: How many evaluations... Go ahead, Dr. Bailey, I'm sorry.
2: I was going to say, we have, like, on a big case, if somebody's lingering, we might listen to the jail phone calls because, you know, they may act one way in front of us, but then you can pull the jail phone calls for the same day and see if they talk the same way they talk to you. So sometimes we'll do, and then we're not going to do that on a run of the mill case, but on a really big case, we may need to do that if there's some question about their current state or talk to the jail officers and make sure the behavior is consistent with what we're, with what we're seeing. So, and you know, it depends on the case and and how much they're trying to linger.
0: This is jumping ahead just a little bit, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but from the standpoint of making your job as easy as we can, as the judges who are issuing the order, is there something that we can include in the orders or that, that you've seen other judges include in orders that, that relate to um, you being able to get certain information or something like that that would be helpful uh, to include in orders in, in competency evaluations?
3: I I don't know about the order. Karen might, I'm sorry, (laughs) Dr. Bailey might have something different related to that. But one thing that is particularly helpful is our referral form, which is normally completed by the attorney. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions on there is observations that led to this request. And that can kind of give us an idea of what the concern is. And we can focus our evaluation in that direction.
1: I'm going to tell you, if you'll send me one of those, if, if if people need to know what being asked on the referral evaluation, I had no idea there was such a form. And if I am sort of beholden to the lawyer to know there is such a thing, it probably would help if I knew there was such a thing. <laughs> so So if you would give me one, I can make it available to our judges so that if you have a problem routinely getting them. There might be something we can do to help.
3: Yeah, so, and we will and, and, definitely
1: and, get
0: that. And if it's okay, we'll post a copy of that at com.
1: So when you're when you are evaluating insanity at the time of, or sanity at the time of a crime and I know you probably you call it criminal responsibility. I want to say something to our judges that y'all don't really need to necessarily comment on but If you look at OCGA 17-7-130.1
3: Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings.
1: So if you look at that statute, there's supposed to be a trigger before you ask for a criminal responsibility evaluation. And that trigger is a notice of intent to present an insanity defense. Now in Augusta, frankly, you could file that notice just to withdraw it later, if the evaluation doesn't come back the way you want it. So rather than sort of waiting for us to run that circle, the dog chases tail in a, in a circle there, we usually will go ahead and sign the order on the lawyer's representation that there is a reason to do so. If I have a lawyer who, who repeatedly seems to um, abuse that, that, that officer of the court status, I will maybe go in a different path. Is sort of the same for you, Tang?
0: Yeah, we we take the same tack, which is if the lawyer represents to us that they believe there may be an issue with respect to the competency of their client, um, we'll generally go ahead and and ask for an evaluation to be done of that uh, their current competency to assist in their defense, um, without asking you know without making the lawyer file a formal notice of intent.
1: What about the other one? What about the the insanity at the time of the crime? Because that's the one that's really supposed to be triggered, right? By the filing, do you require the filing, or do you do you go ahead and let him file it and go ahead and do it because you're you're taking his or her word at it?
0: I, I don't I don't require it, and I don't know that any other judge in my circuit requires that. Um, because, as you said, we're really only waiting for something that's likely to be inevitable. If we're not going to go ahead and do it. They can file that and then withdraw it depending on what the evaluation tells them. And I'd rather, I'd rather go ahead and know that information to know if it's a case we can proceed on or if it's not.
2: Can I add something? Criminal, yes, ma'am. Responsibility, criminal responsibility evaluation, because some judges still use the old order with both competency and criminal responsibility on it. And criminal responsibility is a very time-consuming evaluation compared to competency, because you've got to dig for information, And, and if you're not going to use it, and if it's just being filed to file, I don't think that attorneys realize how they're creating a backlog, because it takes us a very long time to do those evaluations. We have to write another report. And sometimes the defendant doesn't even want that evaluation done because they do not want to plead insanity. And when we get those on really minor, you know, minor, minor cases, we're thinking, really? You know, I mean, you know, who's going to plead insanity on criminal trespassing or something like that? And But yet we still have to do it, and it puts all the other cases, you know, a month out which you know judges don't want so i mean to me if i could have one plea it's like ask for criminal responsibility when you're really going to use it not just you know a fishing expedition because it's yeah
0: yeah if we can emphasize anything to our judges out there who are listeners that is don't forget these are two different evaluations they're not part and parcel of the same thing and if you don't need one uh, if you don't need both ask for the one you need and and if the lawyer asks you for an evaluation make sure that he or she tells you why they think that they need that or at least what kind of evaluation they think they need cuz that that's really that's a good, very good point
1: so let me ask you this, sort of in that same vein, because I think there needs to be an appreciation that y'all aren't sitting around just so excited that somebody sent you another evaluation order waiting to have something to do. You're so bored. How many orders for mental evaluations, whether competency, criminal responsibility, or both? How many do you get in a year? Do you have any any sense
2: of that? About 3,000.
1: Wow. And do you
0: have any sense of the average amount of time that it takes to not only to do the evaluation, but just to, to go through the whole process from the time you get it, getting an evaluator assigned, you know, getting them to do uh, either or both kinds of evaluations and then get it back to the court? Because the, the reports we get, don't that's not an easy report to write up either at once you've even finished the evaluation. Any sense of, of, of that?
2: I'll say one thing and I'll let Dr. Wright add the rest. Um, it depends on the evaluation. So, you know, how much information we need. And one thing that um, Judge Paget asked is some judges do put in their court order or release of information. It doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. So if we have to get hospital records from private hospitals, anything we can do to speed that up will speed the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so... To do the evaluation can vary between an hour and a half you know of being with the defendant to you know if it's a death penalty case, it could be fifteen hours being with the defendant. so um, and reading the information again depends on how much it is and how much time you've got to spend trying to dig that information. Some attorneys, some defense attorneys will hand it all right to you, then we can go. but if we have to dig for it, it, it delays it. Dr. Wright, what do you want
3: to add? The only other thing I think that I wanted to add, of course, the could be travel time depending on how far the evaluator lives, because, as I said, we have the state split into four areas. So it could be a couple hours just one way and then report writing time, you know, gathering all the data, writing it into a cohesive narrative. It could take somebody so on an hour, it could take them four hours, maybe more, just depending on the evaluator.
0: And Wade will back me up on this. I'm not a math guy, but uh, even if it took two hours for each evaluation, that's 6,000 hours a year for 40 evaluators or, you know, however, you might have a few extra people working on that in, inside some of the institutions, but that that's a lot of manpower. Uh, That's required uh, just on a minute. I mean, just if it was just two hours per report, um, that's a that's a
1: lot. Dr. Bailey, do y'all produce a report like per circuit? Like how many how many do you get from the Atlanta circuit? How many do you get from Cobb? How many do you get from Augusta?
2: Yeah, I can give it to you by circuit. I can give it to you by judge. Yeah, we, we keep the data so I can tell you how many you ordered and and for each circuit for each judge.
1: Just I tell me how many Tane ordered. Don't tell me how many I ordered. <laughs> Paget's
0: Paget's got a really wild circuit over there. Though, so uh, <laughs> yeah, you I'm know. just thinking
1: that the number I did just real quickly with 40 evaluators, 3,000 evaluations. That's that's 75 per. That's a lot. I mean, that seems like a. Is there like a national standard? Like how many how many evaluations should forensic evaluators do in a year or whatever?
2: And our average, when I have to do averages for budgeting, I count each evaluation eight hours is for travel time, seeing the defendant and writing the report. And that's an average. Like we said, some could be quick, but death penalty could take forever. So, so but we use an average of eight to 10 hours per, per evaluator, per evaluation.
1: Wow. wow. That's a lot of hours. Um, have these increased or decreased during COVID?
2: It has been about the same. The nice thing about COVID is we found out we can do evaluations over over WebEx or over Zoom, and it's worked out well. So we the travel time is um, is gone, which is which makes us a little bit more efficient. So that's worked. It doesn't work in all the cases, but it worked in some. Um, Dr. Wright can add to that.
0: That's you- great. We we. Um- One of our local programs over here started doing some of those kinds of mental evaluations over WebEx a couple of years ago for that reason, because the people they were evaluating didn't have access to transportation. And it was it was it was amazing what they were able to do over that. So I commend you all for uh, adapting like everybody else has over this time to figure out whether we could do our jobs uh, the best we possibly can over uh, over Zoom.
1: Does it strike anybody else as weird? as you have people who don't have access to transportation, but they have access to Zoom?
0: No, we'd we'd let them Zoom from the office. From uh, I mean, from, still, I mean, you know, from our just, agency's office.
1: It's it just it's just it just seems amazing how the world has changed. Do you ever do any sort of evaluations as to intellectual disability?
3: Not specifically for that purpose, but sometimes as a part of a competency evaluation, or definitely on the juvenile side behavioral health evaluations some intellectual testing may be done
2: so we do we don't respond, we don't respond to orders that ask for an IQ test if the evaluator feels like it needs to be done for some reason to rule something out we'll do it the only one that we pretty much do it routinely is obviously on a death penalty case um, But even there, if the person graduated college, we're probably not
1: going to do it. So, Tane, before they got on today, you and I were talking about some really recent developments when we have to have some of their evaluators come to court or not necessarily come to court. Mm -hmm. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I know Dr. Bailey and I talked about it in advance of today as well, how much of a life-changing and improvement it can be when we use video.
0: Yeah, we, Wade and I were talking about that earlier. Um, I recently was able to have uh, one of your folks appear in court via video, which for my purposes was completely adequate. I mean, it was, it was, you know, uh, completely um, helped with what we needed. Um, How much does that help you folks if we can uh, continue to do some of that and even in the post COVID era?
2: I want to answer that one because it's really important it more it's important for our outpatient evaluators but it's really important for our, our docs in the hospital because when we're our docs in the hospital patient might be in Cobb County but be in the hospital in Savannah sure. and so when they have to testify we've got to take a doc out of the hospital and they have to drive from Savannah to Cobb County and back it's a whole day they're not in the hospital And as you know, we're not super well-staffed, but we have docs we can take out of the hospital. So, And sometimes, as you know, especially on the civil commitment hearings, they may be 10 or 15 minutes, and we took somebody out of the hospital serving patients for an entire day just for a 15-minute hearing. And the other thing is the client, the defendant sometimes can testify from the hospital in their own room, because when we send them to the jail, they often get off their medications. Yes. And there's all kinds of problems so if it's okay with the defense attorney and the client they can also testify from the hospital independently and for our evaluators it is it is a huge time saving and resource savings
0: I can't tell you how many times I've I've had a criminal defense attorney say, Judge, if we have to bring my client from the hospital, can we get them here and get them back as fast as possible so they don't get off their medication and, and get back into the state they were in before they went there? And so we all y'all have been great, and our sheriff's office have been great about trying to turn folks around really quickly when we had to do that.
1: Let me ask well, one more thing, and then we're yeah. going to wrap this up. I understand the legal standard that is applicable to criminal responsibility, right from wrong, all of that, the McNaughton test and all that stuff. I'm not sure I understand the standard for competency because I will see, for example, the sort of a report of the dialogue between the evaluator and the patient where they say, I asked the 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 patient what does the judge do? What's the DA's role? What's the whatever? And the answers were not like they plant the plants. I mean it was it was something that was logical and in line. It did not show a depth of understanding, but it showed an understanding of the role. What is the standard by which, Dr. Wright, y'all are figuring out if a person is presently competent? What's the the break point where you say yes, no?
3: Again, it's for one, the bar is very low to be um, competent or for us to opine an individual competent. Because, as I mentioned, they're not expected to be attorneys. They have an attorney. They are just expected to understand what is going on so it's not so much about a person being able to memorize or parrot back information it's more about if they can understand this information so do they understand not necessarily this is my defense attorney and they're going to protect my rights they just have to know this person is working with me and they're on my side versus this other attorney who is not necessarily on my side or trying to help me. So it's, it's a low bar. It's again, just about the capacity, not so much the knowledge.
1: Okay. So there's not, you've got to get a 73 on the test. It's not like that, but you've got to, as the evaluator, you've got to walk away with a feeling that this person has a, has a has a sense of what is going on in a courtroom and what everybody's role is relative to him or her so to speak okay yes yeah,
3: so and we just kind of base that on our clinical judgment
1: malingering we talk about we seem to talk about that a lot especially in in criminal responsibility with your training and your experience you can sort of identify the difference between someone who is going through a an acute crisis moment and someone who's malingering. I know you don't have a crystal ball any more than we do, but do you feel that that you can that you can pretty accurately gauge that those two sort of differentiations?
3: I think between again our clinical training and judgment, oftentimes coupled with specific measures that assess for feigning, we can do a pretty good job weeding that out and Worst case scenario, if we can't do it in the hour or two that we are meeting with the person, oftentimes we will have them go inpatient where there will be eyes on them 24 hours a day. And hopefully there can be a quick turnaround to determine whether or not um, they are presenting in a genuine matter or not. The big thing I think is that Most people don't really understand mental illness enough to adequately and accurately fake it. And so that is kind of usually what trips them up.
1: Got you. Well, Dr. Bailey, hopefully you've been saving your breath because here comes your big speech moment. Okay. Your big (laughs) monologue Uh at the end. How can we help you? How can judges help you and your department do your job even better if that's possible than what y'all do? I think y'all do an amazing job. It's a thankless job. And I know that nobody ever takes the time and says, wow, without you, we really wouldn't be able to do it. We recognize that a lot of the people in front of us struggle with mental health concerns, not just competency and criminal responsibility, but but some deep-seated mental health concerns. Tell us how we can help y'all.
2: And the only two things I can think of, and first of all, the judges have always been awesome. And when we call and ask judges to do something or ask a question, they've always been very responsive. But the two things I think of is if judges really ask attorneys, like you were saying, at the beginning, getting why they want that evaluation and just not sign it. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes we can see that the judge didn't read the order because we read the order and go, no judge would have signed this if they <laughs> if they read this order. Um, so if they ask, because I think that gets attorneys to start realizing they have to have a reason for the evaluation and you know and so that saves resources because then we won't be so um delayed in getting reports to the court if we have less focused, you know, evaluations. And the other one is it's not it's the is the civil commitment. Sometimes when someone's in the hospital, we need those cases reviewed annually. And sometimes we don't know, when we send reports, we don't know where they go, and people are in the hospital, and the court order's actually expired, and we don't know how to get to the judge to say, you know, legally, they need a new order. And so that that's... Um, we send, you know, we send a letter to the court, and I don't know if that is enough to alert the judge that we need a hearing, we need this case it, reviewed.
0: It ought to be, but it isn't always. <laughs> I will tell you this too, and I've I've been guilty of this before, and I, I don't know how it happened, but uh, a year or so ago, we had a, a case where the order had expired, and we didn't have it. We didn't realize it had expired, and the doctor. It was kind enough to send us a letter a couple of months later and say, "Look, we we need another evaluation. We we, you know, we don't have, we don't have. I mean, we need another order. We haven't evaluated this person, and 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 it, it you know, we're holding them without with an expired order, and um, it was great because. You know, for all our ability to keep up with things, uh, (laughs) a year a year down the line, uh, sometimes is more than uh, than we can keep up with. I hate to admit. So it was great, and we got them in, and everybody got what they needed, and and fortunately, the client was still getting the treatment they needed too. And they needed to stay there. It wasn't the case where we kept them someplace they didn't need to be. So um, that was good. But yeah, y'all do a great, great job. And your doctors uh, in the inpatient facilities that I have dealt with have always been really incredible. Um, They understand the process of what we're doing and you know they provide great service. I think to uh, to help us <laughs> figure out what it is that we need to do. So thank you very
1: much for that. So Wait, Doc- any other wrap up on on those? Yeah, this is what I was going to say, Doctor Bailing, Doctor Wright. Seriously, we want to thank you and, and your department for all that you do for the citizens of Georgia, for the court system, for for walking that tightrope between competency and, and and incompetency, and then criminal responsibility and opining as you do. Now, that having been said, as I started this, I told you, I hope that I wasn't going to traumatize you so much that you wouldn't come back because there are (laughs) two additional episodes we need to do. You just hit on something we need to do. You were found incompetent. Now what? You were found not criminally responsible. Now what? Because what you just said, I'm frankly, I'm going to be honest with you. If we took an honest Frank poll from our 215 Superior Court judges across Georgia, 20% would know what they needed to do when they got that evaluation order? I agree. It, it's not. It's not because they don't care. It's just because of the volume of stuff they do. Not that many people are found not guilty by reason of insanity and remain hospitalized long term. There's by percentages, it's not that many people, but every one of them is important, and we just need to make sure that we do that. So, we, when your voice is all better and you don't feel <laughs> ill, can you think we can do that? Love you. Good. All right. Way to get that
0: commitment, Wade. I appreciate well, I'm a closer.
1: I'm a closer, man. This is
0: how this is how Wade got married. Like
1: he, he just kept pushing
0: <laughs> and he wouldn't take no for an answer, and she finally agreed.
1: Speaking of which, today is my thirty second wedding anniversary. Congratulations, Thank Wade. Thank you. So now I have to yeah. take my wife to dinner. Um yes. and
0: she I, I tell everybody, she's the probate judge in in Augusta or in in that circuit. In Columbia in there. County. Columbia County, yeah. And I always tell uh, everybody, she is my favorite Judge Padgett.
1: Mine too. (laughs) Um, Folks, as we noted, this episode was a product of requests made by our listeners. Continue to help us provide input for help us help you, help us give you information you want. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com. Dr. Wright's going to get me some of the forms and maybe the latest forms of the orders to make sure everybody's using the right one and we're not just checking boxes. We don't know what we're doing. And, Tane, I think we're supposed to bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you need to, you need you you think we need to talk about? No.
0: Thanks again to our guests for today and thanks to our listeners. And, again, don't forget, CDC guidelines require you to wash your hands for 20 seconds after podcasting. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE.
0: Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger.
1: Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can.
0: But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project.
1: The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter.
0: These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for
1: anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com.
0: Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com.
1: So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say?
0: Only stay classy, San Diego.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.